So I don't know what your childhood was like, but I grew up in an incredible family. Grew up in with a home of an all-boy home. Anybody got any all-boy homes in the house? So I grew up, you can see a picture of my, me and my three brothers here. And it's me at the top, the biggest one, but I'm, there's a, it's great. We have this incredible relationship, me and my brothers. We, we text every night, almost every day, about something probably related to sports. Last night we were talking about how Aaron Gordon got robbed from the dunk competition last night. We're always talking, and we have this incredible relationship. But there was some trauma I experienced as a child. And it's most likely we have some people in the room that experienced this same kind of trauma. And that trauma is being a middle child. Any middle children in the room? So being a middle child is, is actual trauma. Like there's things that we experience that none of you ever will know about. So let me just give you, for you non-middle children people in the room, let me just give you some, some insights on what it's like being a middle child. My parents are in the room, so they would be the ones laughing the loudest. We never got to open presents first because the oldest child either opened the present first or the youngest child opened the present first, but the middle child never got to open the presents first. We always got referred to by our last name or our older brother's name because he did so great and he was that phenomenal that you just related to him. You were just, your name was his name and his name was your name. And we were always to blame for everything. Middle child, top, oldest child was perfect. Youngest child was a hot mess, but my parents were too busy whipping me to whip him. And I was to blame for nothing. I was so innocent. Which is not true. You can see, even see in that picture. It looks like I just gave my brother a wet willy even in that picture. But I joke mostly. But there is something connected to our experience as a middle child to how we treat the Holy Spirit. I believe that we often treat the Holy Spirit as the middle child of the Trinity. We don't know what to call him. Is he it or is he a he? We don't know how to recognize his work in the world. And if we're honest, we kind of only talk about him when people are doing crazy things. We don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit because for most of us, maybe your background's different, but in my experience, the Holy Spirit hasn't, wasn't really taught about. We don't know how to interact with him. and We don't know what to do with him. So my goal this morning, my hope this morning is to answer three questions. Those three questions being, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And how do we live with him? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And how do we live with him? For context, if you're just joining us, we're studying the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is aimed at helping us believe. Helping us understand the gospel story. Helping us know and love Jesus. And we're, we've been journeying through this book for a little while now. And we are at the turning point. Jesus is at a dinner table. He's up in our upper room. And he's teaching his disciples for one of the last times ever before his death. And he's teaching them. He's encouraging them. He's talking about how to love one another. He's talking about how to care for one another. He's washing their feet. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. He tells Peter he's going to deny him. Then last week, Brad informed us that he told them that they were going to suffer. And this morning, we pick up, he's telling them that he's going to leave. And that's why he's teaching them about what is to come. 
The first question he answers is, who is the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 4. I, do not, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now that I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Could you imagine being at this table where Jesus is teaching this? These disciples have been with Jesus for three years. They devoted their lives to following this man. They've seen him do incredible things. They've seen him do miraculous things. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him raise dead people to life. They've seen him, they've seen him feed 6,000 people with a Lunchable. They've seen him do insane things. They're like, what, we're leaving? Because their view of the kingdom was that Jesus was going to rule and reign right then and there. They thought they were going to be a part of the party who took over Jerusalem. They thought they were going to be ruling and reigning right then. And then he says this crazy statement is actually to your advantage that I go. I don't know about you, but if I'm the disciples, I'm like, my life was a wreck before you got here. I don't know how it's to my advantage that you leave. If we're honest, we're thinking, if I had Jesus, things would definitely be better. Instead of me walking up here on stage this morning, if Jesus Christ walked up on this stage, opened the Bible and started teaching, you'd be like, yeah, give me some notes. I'm going to write down. Let me, let me listen to Jesus. But Jesus tells us it is better that he's not here. It is better to understand this, we must understand the Trinity. We must understand this belief, this conviction, this theology that we believe as Christians. The Bible teaches that God is three persons in one being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you're new to Christianity and that sounds bizarre, well, there's more things we believe that are similar to that in that nature. We, believe, we actually believe somebody rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus is man and God. We believe God is completely and sovereignly in charge of all things, but we are responsible. This trinity is a belief, it's a conviction on faith in the scriptures. We see that there is a God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit, equal in power and value, distinct in role and person. And they're all three at work. The Holy Spirit is not the, the force from Star Wars. He's not just some, some, some ghost figure that's at work in the world. He's a person. He has dignity. He has value. He has worth. Equal. Equal to the Father and the Son. And this Trinity works in the creation. And he works in redemption to accomplish the will of the Father. So if you want like taglines for each person of the Trinity, if the Father is the planner. He plans and ordains everything in history. That includes all human history and all salvific history. He plans everything. The Son entered our world to achieve that plan. He bought redemption 
on the cross and through his resurrection. And the Spirit has been sent to apply that redemption in its accomplishment to the world. The Father is the planner, the Son is the achiever, and the Spirit is the applier. That's why the Spirit is sent in the world. And we know this sent language. Even think about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he what? Gave, or you could say he sent his Son John 4, he, he served this woman at the well, and he's, af, he's af, waiting on his disciples. His disciples bring back food, and he's like, Jesus, are you hungry? He's like, no, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. John 14 says that there are greater works you will do when the Spirit comes after I'm glorified. There's a sending nature in the Trinity. So God the Father has sent the Son, and the Son is now sending the Spirit. And he has a role. He has a purpose. He's not just some thing. One pastor summarizes this text like this. It is better to have the Spirit in us than Jesus beside us. It is better to have the Spirit in us than Jesus beside us. Jesus says, it is to your advantage. Now the question is how? Why is he here? That's our second question. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? First, it gives us a job description. He convicts the world. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So when the Father sent the Son, the Son's aim was to glorify the Father and display, to image forth the Father in the world. Similar to when you have kids, they represent you in the world for good or for bad, right? God the Father has sent his Son and said, you want to know what I'm like? Look at my Son. Look at Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life life. He acted righteously. He was merciful and kind. He dealt with people with such tenderness and such righteousness. He defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. The ruler of this world has now been judged because Jesus put his foot on Satan's head. The Holy Spirit is now, has been, now been sent into the world to testify them same realities. So he convicts the world of sin, because if you didn't know this or not, this world's messed up. And that world includes you and me. And the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to testify to Jesus, because we have sinned and we aren't holy and God is not, and the Spirit shows us those gaps. Because of righteousness, he shows us unrighteousness. He shows us that we have not acted like we should. We're not as kind as we should be. We're not as merciful as we should be. We're not as tender and honest as we should be. The Spirit's role is to show us our gaps. But he doesn't just do that. Similar to a doctor, he's not just the one who diagnoses. He's the one who heals. The Spirit lights those things to us, he shows us those dark corners of our world. 
and he heals us. He brings us alive. This is why he exists. It's why he's here to show us. This means, before you think I sound heretical, that Jesus' death by itself wasn't enough to save us. If Jesus would have just died and rose and the Spirit would have never come, this church would not exist. God sent his Spirit when after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus ascended, the Spirit came, and the Spirit makes us alive. We wouldn't need the Spirit if we were just neutral. If we were just neutral and we had made the decision, like, I guess I'll choose Jesus or not choose Jesus. I guess the arguments are convincing or not convincing enough. But we're not neutral, are we? Ephesians 2 says we're dead. That means we're locked in. That means we're dead in our spiritual coffins. And the Spirit is the one who makes us alive in Christ. That means that we don't just come to conclusions and have this intellectual faith. Our hearts have to be turned on. Our hearts have to be made alive. One pastor said it like this, that Jesus bought the house and the Spirit turned the lights on. Jesus paid for your sin 2,000 years ago, but it was the Spirit that woke you up. You were spiritually dead. You aren't a Christian because you were raised in a Christian family. You aren't a Christian because you come to church. You're not a Christian because you do the right things. We are Christians because we have been made alive by the grace and power of the Spirit of Christ. That's all grace. That means that's why we cannot boast in anything. We get no pass in the back. When you're saved, there are no congratulations. It's all gift. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. The Spirit has sent, the Jesus has sent the Spirit after you. How amazing is this gospel, guys, that God could have just left us alone. He could have just left us in our sin. But not only did he do that, he sent his son, his only son, to be spat on, to be mocked, to die a criminal's death. He raised from the dead. He didn't stop there. He could have easily stopped there. But he pursued us. He came after us. Through his Holy Spirit, he didn't just say, good luck. He said, I'm coming after your heart. Friends, that is the gospel. The gospel is that this Trinity, this beautiful picture of the Trinity, that has planned our salvation, has accomplished and achieved our salvation through the cross and the resurrection of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ has made us alive. That is the good news of the gospel. And that's why, that's why we can trust the Spirit at work, because there are no halfway Christians, there are not almost Christians, there are dead people, and then there's Christians. The same spirit that made you alive can make anybody alive. And that means, friend, nobody is unreachable. That means if that child that you have been wanting to come to Christ for years, you've given up hope, you, you, you're praying, you're longing, you're yearning, you're lamenting, Lord, why haven't you saved them? They are reachable. 
Friends, I've seen it over and over again. The parent longing for this kid to get saved, longing for this kid to get There's no hope. They're off the rails. There is no way to reach them. Then bam, I get that phone call. Zach, you'll never believe what, what happened. My, my son called me. He, he came to the end of himself. He, he put his faith in Jesus. That is not an abnormal story. Anybody is, is reachable. That's why we go to unreached people groups that do not want us to go there because they are reachable. That's why we go to our coworker that frustrates us every single day that doesn't know Jesus. They are reachable. That's why we go to our neighbors. They are reachable because the spirit of Christ's work is to convict the world of sin and save people. That's his role. That's his job. That's the beauty of the Trinity at work in salvation. The Spirit's role is to convict of sin, but he also does more than that. He guides the truth. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Could you imagine being the disciples here? They're overwhelmed by the truth that Jesus has just taught them. They're going to suffer. He's going away, and here's what Jesus tells them. By the way, there's more. But I can't tell you yet because you're about to, your head's about to explode. And look what he says. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he bears, he, whatever he hears, he will speak. And when he declares you the things that are to come. Jesus is teaching that the Spirit doesn't just make people alive. When you become a Christian, the Spirit makes his home inside of you. This is the, the craziest thing. That the Spirit isn't just working the world. He's working inside of us. So when you become a Christian, you're made alive by the Spirit. And the Spirit is working in you. He guides you to truth. That means to intellectual truth and to heart truth. That he wants to make you whole. He wants to make you whole. He's shining a flashlight into the corners of your life. He's shining a flashlight on the Bible. Friend, this is why we can understand this book. We believe that this book was written by the Holy Spirit. We believe there's no imperfection in this book. And if you're a Christian in this room, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have a book written by the Holy Spirit. That means you can understand this book. It means you can look inside of these pages and find life. And you've seen this. You've seen this. You, you've had that light bulb go off in your head. Things you didn't understand, and now you understand. Teenager, this means this is not a book for an adult. If the Holy Spirit's inside you, you can understand this amazing and incredible book. You don't need to have a particular GPA. You don't need to have a certain grade level. You don't need to have a college education. You need the Spirit of Christ in this book alone. This is why we preach from the Bible. Friends, if it was up to me to articulate very clear truths from this book and the Spirit wasn't at work, you guys would be hopeless. Because I couldn't do it. The Spirit is at work when we open this book and preach from it. That's why I'm, I, my goal is to show you this book and say, see this Bible and, and feel this Bible, experience the Bible, because we don't have the supernatural wisdom to give to you. We believe it's in the book. 
This also means that the more Bible you know, you don't get credit for. If you are here and you memorize a bunch of scripture, you know systematic theology, and God has just allowed you to know the deep parts of the Bible, it's not because of you. It's because the Spirit has allowed you and guided you to the truth. Romans 12.3 says this, that do not thank you of yourself more highly than you ought to, but thank with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God grants. Your knowledge of the Bible is dictated by the amount the Holy Spirit has been filled up inside of you. 100% grace. You get zero credit for how much Bible you do or do not know. It's all grace. He doesn't just guide our intellectual thoughts. He guides our affections. The Holy Spirit shines a light into your life, and he, he's like a lamp. He's like a spotlight. He's like a, a, a lamp over an operating table. Helping you see the dark corners of your life. Helping you see that sin that nobody has told you about. Helping you see things about your life that you need help seeing. And you know this. You've experienced this. If you've been a Christian long enough, you have experienced this. Because most of sanctification shouldn't be seen in the mirror. It should be seen as you look back on your life. You don't see yourself growing physically. When you, if you have young kids, you're marking them off maybe every six months or a year. The whole, sanctification is similar. Spiritual growth is similar like that. That means spiritual growth, the spirit working in us, looks like this. Looking back on our life and saying, how was I that dumb? Why didn't anybody tell me that was, that was not okay? How did I think that was okay? Why didn't somebody speak to me? And many of us experience that. We look back in our lives and it's like we cringe. It's like, why did I think I was allowed to do that? Sanctification is a slow, progressive, stumbling upward. The Spirit is guiding your affections, shining a light on the dark corners of your life. Gradually, slowly, but hopefully, in helping you meet Jesus. So the Spirit convicts, the Spirit guides, but then the text shows us the goal of the Spirit. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to, is to shine a light and make the name of Jesus famous. The gospel of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in the world are directly linked the declaration and fame of Jesus is the goal of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. So think about the Holy Spirit as a lamp. The lamp's goal is not for you to look at the lamp. Or a spotlight or a flashlight or a floodlight's goal isn't for you to look at the light. The goal of a light is to shine the light on what should be seen. The Holy Spirit has no interest in gaining worship or earning your, your lip service. He's saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. His goal is to glorify Jesus. So the gospel being proclaimed and loved and renewed and hoped in is the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you see the gospel preached, you're falling more in love with the gospel, you're, you're, you're being renewed in the gospel, is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
If you see stuff that is anti-gospel, that means the Spirit's not in it. The gospel of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are directly connected because the Holy Spirit's aim is to glorify Jesus. So, this third person of the Trinity at work in the world to convict, to guide, and to glorify Jesus. Now, the hard question is that we always have is, how do we live with him? Ephesians 5 tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians says, walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And for us, if you're honest, you're like, I don't know what that looks like. Is there a glass of Holy Spirit I can drink from? Do I do this or do that? And we're so confused. Do I just read my Bible more? Well, I think this text helps us. I think we, we walk with him by first falling more in love with Jesus. You don't, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit by looking for the Holy Spirit. You're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit by falling more and more in love with Jesus. He has no interest in getting pats on the back. He is directing your affections and your heart to Jesus. And that's why as a church, our vision statement is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. It's not igniting an argument to follow Jesus, igniting a mindset to follow Jesus, igniting a worldview to follow Jesus. It's igniting a passion because what the Spirit does is it stirs our affections. It's gasoline to a spark. It's wanting to change our heart. He wants to change our loves. So if you hear and you call yourself a Christian, but your heart and affections haven't changed since you called yourself a Christian, if you have no different desires, you have no different passions, I would ask you to question whether you're a Christian. To become a Christian means the Spirit has changed your heart. If you are a Christian, if you're here and you're faithfully trying to love Jesus, and you're like, I don't know how. Well, Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. And Ephesians 5.19 says, by singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, admonishing one another. One of the ways you can be filled with the Spirit is by committing to worship every Sunday. Because when we show up, we're not just responding to the Spirit. We're opening ourselves up to the Spirit. We're receiving the Spirit. We're being filled with the Spirit. Because this is exactly why this auditorium is shaped like it is. We're in a, more of a circular stadium seating because we can, I can see somebody and see them worship. I can see them just singing out truths, but I know their life that week was really, really hard. When we come to sing, sometimes we need to sing truths our heart is struggling to believe. It's also why Sunday morning isn't just about preaching. Worship is not the warm-up to preaching. Worship is foundational to your formation. Worship is foundational to your formation. So commit. Bring your whole self here. Because I don't know about you, but I don't skip to work on Monday morning. And I work in this building. I've blown it this week. I've been more rude to my wife than I should have. I haven't been the best dad. 
I haven't been the best friend. I need grace. I haven't read my Bible as much as I should have. I haven't prayed as much as I should have. And I need a a big drink of God's grace. And the primary means in which I can get that is this gathering. So here's a question for you. To know if you're fully committed to the service. If you're fully committed to worship. When you miss, can you tell? If you miss a Sunday for vacation or you you decide to sleep in or for whatever reasons you miss, if you miss, can you tell? Is your heart wavering that week? I don't know about you, but I need this gathering. I need singing with you guys. I need hearing from God's word with you guys. I need you guys to help me follow Jesus. And that doesn't mean you come and God will love you more. Friend, God loved you just as much when you're hitting snooze button this morning he does right now. You do not earn God's love through walking through those doors. God loves you from eternity's past. He loved you on the cross. He loved you knowing all the times you would skip church. He loves you. This is for our formation. God isn't up in heaven like, man, I hope such and such goes to church today. I don't know if I'm getting enough glory. God is self-sufficient. This gathering is for our formation. Commit to this gathering. Secondly, respond to his leading. One of the ways God works in us is showing us our sin and how we need to repent. He shows us the dark corners of our lives. So the question is, are you you willing to respond to those dark corners? Are you eager to justify them? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you, you've been coming around church and you haven't really been convinced of this Christianity thing, but this morning the Holy Spirit is at work on you. And I would even say the fact that you're here means the Holy Spirit is work in you. The Holy Spirit isn't just a supernatural thing that, that does miraculous things. The Holy Spirit got you up out of your seat this morning, got you up out of your bed this morning, brought you through those doors and put you in the seat where you're at. And maybe you're here because you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. It doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80 years old. Maybe today is a day for your salvation. Don't say, I'll do it next week. Don't say, I'll wait another time. Maybe today the Spirit is working in your life to respond to the beautiful and amazing grace of God. We'd love to talk to you about that. But if you're a Christian... Respond quickly to how he shows you your sin. Respond urgently to how he guides you to wisdom. The Holy Spirit doesn't just guide us to biblical truth. He guides us to all truth. That means we can read his word and respond to his word and and be in his word and study his word and pray and know the Bible. But there's also things that are not clear in the Bible when he got himself. James 1 tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask and I will grant it. That means that we need wisdom. Anybody need wisdom in the room? Anybody got a hard decision in life? The problem is that we're so busy and we're so hectic and we got a screen in front of us and we got a a, a news channel in front of us, we got Netflix in front of us, and we got all these things which are not all bad in and of themselves that the Holy Spirit is just white noise. We can't feel him. 
We can't hear him. That doesn't mean get in a, a closet and wait for him to vocally tell you that's been manipulated, that, this, that this, this line of thinking has been done very, very wrong. Like if, you, if, you're a date, if you're dating somebody in the room and you think about breaking up with them, please don't bring the Holy Spirit into it. They don't need, to, they already know you're against them. They don't need God against them too. Like don't use the Holy Spirit as a scapegoat. The Holy Spirit never contradicts this word. So if you're trying to justify sinful actions with the Holy Spirit, know that the Spirit never contradicts himself. The Spirit wrote this book, and the Spirit is not nudging you to contradict this book. Respond to his leading. Quiet yourself. Quiet yourself. Find space, find margin to feel, to feel that nudging, feel that experience of the Holy Spirit that you want to reach out to that person. You need to care for that person. You need to pray for that person. You have that conversation. You need to give to that organization. You need to give to your church. The Holy Spirit is nudging you in all these godly directions. You need to be able to hear him and listen to him. So respond to his leading. And lastly, Live with overwhelming optimism. You want to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit means we live in confidence in His work. Think about why the, Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit. These disciples are weary. They're scared. They're hopeless. They're, they're terrified. They know, like, I'm going to suffer. Then Jesus is leaving. Now what? How does this work? What do we do? They're hopeless. And this is why Jesus tells them, the helper is coming, the helper is coming, and it's to your advantage that he comes. Friends, that story, that narrative isn't, isn't just too dissonance from our story, is it? You think fear is in our world right now? You think hopelessness exists? You think fear is very present? I don't know if you're involved with teenagers, but teenagers are so terribly scared right now. They're worried about their future. They're worried about their relationships. They're worried about their loneliness. They're worried about their college education. They're worried about paying for their college education. They're worried about all the, the governmental fear going on and how their parents are talking about it, how their social media outlets are talking about it, and they're terrified. And what fear does is it paralyzes and immobilizes us. It, you, you don't do anything. And if the Spirit is at work in the world, friend, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear for our lives because God is going to keep us. If the Spirit is in you, then He is going to keep you. He's going to perfect what He started, and He's going to carry you to the end. The Spirit is in you until you meet Jesus face to face. He's got you. You do not have to worry about your salvation. You don't have to fear if everything's going to be okay. The Spirit is in you. And I don't know if you know this, but God does not lose. This isn't just for your life. This means for the lives of those around you. If you believe the gospel and you believe the Spirit is at work in the world, then the Spirit can do a work in the people around you. And that's your neighbor, that's your coworker. That's your kid. It may be your spouse. God is more eager to save people 
than we are. God is more able to save people than we are. God is more willing to do something than we are. And we must trust him with hope. Fear must not have reign on our hearts. Hope must have reign on our hearts. Because God is at work in the world. I can remember being in college, doing college ministry, and had these seven friends I was longing, Lord, will you save these friends? I would share the gospel. No, Zach, that's cool, but not cool for me. No, Zach, that sounds good, but I'm just doing my thing right now. No, Zach, I'm living this lifestyle, maybe later. I can remember like, just eagerly begging God, God, will you save these people? Will you save these people? And just getting the door slammed in my face over and over again. And then we had this retreat. And I invited all kinds of athletes from my college campus to this athletic FCA retreat. And we got there, and turns out these seven people decided to go because a lot of other athletes were going. And I can remember during one of the sessions, the, the preacher got up. He, he preached the gospel, and he gave an invitation. And the only people who stood up during the invitation were my seven friends. And I can remember just thinking, what? what? How did you do that? I've been trying for so long. And I was like looking at the preacher like, what did I do wrong and what did you do right? I felt hopeless. I even said to God, I've given up. And one of these friends, like my best friend still today, we were texting the other night about the, the guy his little sister's dating. And in that moment, when I saw those seven people stand up, it's like God spoke to me. It said, Zach, I love these people more than you do. I'm more eager to save them than you are. I'm more able than save, to save them than you are. I'm more powerful than you'll ever be. Just trust me. Friend, God loves the people in your life more than you do. God is more eager to save them than you are. God is more able to do something than we will ever be. So we have no other option but to trust him. Friend, imagine if this church became the church that was known for being annoyingly optimistic. Like we're that church that like no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation, we're not just blindly trusting, but we're saying, yes, but Jesus reigns. Yes, but the Spirit is at work. Yes, but God is in control. What if we were a church where people came to our doors because they're in that world they're living in out there, it's nothing but chaos and confusion and they're looking for a fresh glass of grace. They're looking for a place where it's not chaotic, that's not confusing. And this place to them was a refuge of hope. And what if these walls were filled with people Longing for hope and confidence in a world full of confusion and chaos. In a world full of pessimism and fear. And we are able to show them, not because of us, because of the work of Jesus. God, I, I pray God make it so. Let's pray. Father, I love this church. And I pray he used this church and its people to spark a revival. Father, we know revivals in, 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 in history are dictated not by the will of man, but the Spirit of God. But we ask in your name that you do something. That you save sinners. You restore marriages. You bring prodigals home. 
and all for the fame of Jesus, and all by the work of your Spirit. May you shine brightly your light into our world, and you show through our church a hope that can be found not in a political system, not in a, in a circumstance, not in a budget, not in a way of life, but in Jesus. Then many come to Christ that are seeking hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.